0: Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, Ephesians 5. So as I contemplated what to, what to speak on, I thought, you know, since as a church family, we have adopted the CBR Journal as our community Bible reading plan, and so I decided to pick a text from our, one of our recent readings. And so if you're tracking with a plan, then um, you know that uh, our New Testament readings recently have been in the, the wonderful epistles of Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. And I have found that, that Ephesians four and five have been um, particularly thought provoking for me. So today I want to explore a, a section of scripture through the lens of two verses in Ephesians five, one and two. I think these two verses really kind of serve as the pinnacle for the for the whole book of Ephesians. They're what everything before and everything after points to. So, for context purposes, I want to begin reading today in verse seventeen of chapter four. So, this is Ephesians five. Ephesians four. We're going to start in verse seventeen. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus to take off the former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his hands so that he has something to share with everyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth but only what is good for building up as someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the whole God's holy spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Pray with me. Fathers, we come to you today God, we are hungry to hear your word. God, would you speak your, your truth through us today through this most foundational of passages? God, would you give us eyes to see both where we fall short in imitating you as well as eyes to see how far you have brought us in transforming us into your image by your grace? God, may we rest today solely in the hope that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And it's in your holy name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So, it shouldn't be a stunning surprise to anyone to hear me say today that the essence of Christianity can be summed up in four words. Be imitators of God. Christians should be people who mimic Christ. We're called to act like him. We're called to think like him. We're called to talk like him. And yet probably only the most self-delusional among us have asked the question, so how's that going for you? Would probably answer, nailing it. Right? The world is right to call Christians hypocrites if the expectation of us is, is to be carbon copies of Jesus because we all fall woefully short. And yet what we read in Ephesians 5.1 is not a suggestion. It's a command. It's an imperative statement. So why would God command us to do the seemingly impossible? And how exactly are we supposed to live out this lofty expectation? In the next few minutes, I, we will look to answer these questions by examining three aspects of imitating God. We will explore the properties of imitation, the posture of our imitation, and the practice of our imitation. First, we'll look at the properties of our imitation. Genesis 1-6 records God saying, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. I mean, what separates us most from every other living creature is that we alone are the imago Dei. We are the image of God. We were created to reflect God. And this, of course, doesn't mean that, that we're all doppelgangers gangers of God. He of course has attributes that we could never imitate. God is often summarized by two characteristics, his greatness and his goodness. The attributes of his greatness are what is commonly called incommunicable attributes, the meaning we could never imitate these. God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, there is no knowledge outside of him. Even what all of humanity knows collectively cannot compare to what God knows in Himself. He is omnipotent, all powerful. We can't be that. No one thing or no one is greater, equal, or more powerful than God. He is omnipresent. God is spirit, so He's he's all places at once. We can't do that. Kevin sort of did that when he was like, we you noticed know, he was like outside and then he was inside this morning, but that was, that's video tricks, okay? We cannot, we are not omnipresent. Only God is. David describes this attribute in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change, he cannot change. He is eternal, he is infinite, he is transcendent, he is preeminent, he is above all things, and he is incomprehensible. He is beyond our understanding. These are some of the attributes of his greatnesses, greatness, which is which is incommunicable. They cannot be imitated by us or anything. But God does have communicable attributes that describe what it means to be created in his image. You see, we can we are called to imitate his goodness or his moral character. Scripture calls us to what? To be holy as he is holy. He calls us to love like he loves. He calls us to forgive as he forgives. He tells us to imitate his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his gentleness, his faithfulness, his long-suffering, just to name a few. So when God calls us to be imitators of him, these are the traits he equips us to imitate. But when the Apostle Paul commands us to be imitators of God, he goes beyond just the communicable attributes. He also gives us the posture of our imitation. Be imitators of God. How? Well, what does it say next? As dearly beloved children. I mean, this is an immensely helpful image because... Pretty much everyone can relate to how children are imitators. I love hanging out with my, my, my six-year-old grandson. And like most six-year-olds, one of our, our, our favorite things to do is play Legos. So when Owen and I sit down and we start, he, he almost always, he's going to insist on building his own creation, and we start, but it doesn't take long before he starts looking over at my thing and saying, what you building, Papa? I'll tell him, well, I'm working on this. And of course he'll say, well, I want to build one of those, <laughs> which quickly turns into a hostile takeover of my project and um, <laughs> to which he adds a few random pieces and then, then proudly shows off as his project. And I'm okay with that. A little bit, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course, I'm not offended he tries to copy me. He's my dearly beloved grandson, and I love that Owen imitates me. You are a child of God. And I don't mean like the generic, we are all God's children kind of child. I mean the kind of child that the Apostle John talks about when he says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. I think it's important to note here how we did and didn't become children of God. I mean, first of the thing, we can clearly see that not everyone is a child of God. Everyone doesn't receive him or believe in his name. And if we are his children, then this text clearly tells us that we are not children because we were born into a family that has a long lineage of being children of God. It also says that that it wasn't by our will, our decision. We didn't didn't think this up. We didn't logic this out. And it wasn't even because of of a persuasive preacher. So if it wasn't us or our family or our pastor that made us God's children, then how did we become his children? I think Paul answers that in Ephesians 1. Where he says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Galatians 3:26 tells us that through faith. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Okay. So, so if God predestined us to be sons before the foundations of the world and we became sons through faith, then why us? Why did he predestine us? And where does faith come from? Well, once again, the, the answer is in Ephesians. Ephesians 2.8, for what? You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not yourselves, it is a gift of God. This is what fuels our passion to be imitators of God for reasons that we cannot begin to understand. In his infinite grace, God chose us to be his children for no reason that we can possibly take credit for. And then at just the right time in our lives, He opened our eyes through his miraculous gift of faith so that we would believe this most unbelievable story that when we wanted nothing to do with him, God pursued us. We were enslaved children of Satan, enemies of God, and the price of our adoption was God's life for ours. But stunningly, Jesus took the deal. He willingly chose to be rejected by his father and tortured and killed so that what? So that we could become his adopted kids. That's how dearly beloved you are. And of course, the even greater news is that we're not just adopted kids of a dead father. But a father who triumphantly conquered death in the grave so that we could be his dearly beloved children, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. This incredible truth, I think, is what what made the Apostle John burst out in adoration. See what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Isn't that awesome? as the great hymn proclaims, love so amazing, so divine, demands our life, our soul, our all. How can we not want to be imitators of a God who loved us this dearly? And you see, to the degree that we experience and understand the depth of God's love for us, it will dictate how passionately we strive to imitate him. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know God's love that surpasses knowledge. Why? So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. One modern translation says it like this. It says, yes, May you come to know this love, although it can never be fully known, so that you be completely filled with the very nature of God. In short, I want you to know the full extent of God's love for you so that it will fuel you to be an imitator of God. And that leads to my last point in this section, which is that you cannot imitate what you don't know. Knowledge of God may create a desire to imitate him, but to actually be an imitator requires that you get to know him, spend time with him. Children are mimics of their parents because they're rarely away from the presence of their parents. And once again, what is true biologically is true spiritually. Those who spend the most time in the presence of God through reading and studying God's word and through prayer are going to be the best imitators. Authentic Christianity is not defined by believing in Jesus. It's defined by following Jesus. And fortunately, there are far more believers than there are followers. Church, this book is the revealed word of God. God. This is how we know God. This is how we follow him. This is how we imitate him. And and quite honestly, it's really kind of sad and appalling how many self-proclaimed Christians, how little time they spend reading and studying this book. I read a survey done by Christianity Today that found that only 19% of church-going Christians read the Bible daily. And it also found that the average time spent reading God's word among church-going Christians is less than an hour per week. That's among church-going Christians. I think it's safe to say that a, that a child who spends less than an hour of a, a week with his parents is not going to be a very good imitator of his parents, is he? And a Christian who spends less than an hour a week with God is not going to be a very good imitator of God. Hear me. God didn't go to the extremes that He did to adopt you as His dearly beloved child just for you to have an estranged relationship with Him. He loves for us to be in His presence. And our lives will become indescribably sweet when we learn to love to be in his presence as well. I think King David understood this, which is what led him to say, I have one thing from the Lord. I've asked one thing. This is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. This was the fuel that made David an imitator of God as a dearly beloved child. And that takes us to our third point. Now that we've examined the properties and the posture of our imitation, that leads us to the last point, which is the practice of our imitation. We know the general ways that we were called to, uh, and created to imitate God. Hopefully from the last section, we have the motivation to want to imitate him and we know what we need to do so we'll know what to imitate. Now it's go time. What does that look like in our everyday lives? And I think that takes us to the second verse of chapter five of our text today therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And now verse two and what and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. How do we imitate God? By walking in love. Now, Granted, walk in love is a is a broad and ambiguous statement that can be interpreted many ways. So as we've done early, and I think is always important, is we, we must always allow scripture to interpret scripture. And I think that leads us to the first word in our text today, which is therefore. Therefore. The word therefore typically is a word that connects an argument to a conclusion. So in this case, be imitators of God is the conclusion based on the argument that precedes it. It is this argument that I believe gives us clarity as to what it means to walk in love. Everything that precedes chapter five is really the apostle Paul building his argument. But beginning in verse 17 of chapter four is where Paul really flushes out what it means to walk in love. I won't read the whole text in its entirety again, but but as we read earlier, we see Paul tells us not to walk like those who are not children of God. We're called to walk in love. Don't sin in your anger. Only speak words that build people up that it may give grace to its hearers. Walk in love by getting rid of all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander, and malice. Malice. And then he beautifully summarizes it all in verse 32 when he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, therefore, be imitators of God. I think what we see here that is that forgiveness is at the very heart of walking in love. It's not possible to walk in love and not walk in forgiveness. It doesn't happen. You tell me, what drives bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander, and malice? Is it not for unforgiveness? Can you walk in forgiveness with someone and still be filled with bitterness and anger and malice? Can you love someone and slander them and yell at them from a heart of bitterness? You see, I think this is the very heart of this text because you cannot separate love and forgiveness. Love forgives. Forgiveness loves. And without love and forgiveness, you cannot imitate God because God is love. And Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves. Some, some, some translations say he demonstrates God proves his love for us. And what? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 is is, is Ephesians 5.2 in different words. Look at the text again. Walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So, So we're right back at the gospel again. It's the gospel that teaches us the stunning scope of our status as dearly beloved children. And now it's the gospel that informs us of how we are to act. In short, if you want to be an imitator of God, then you must learn daily just how incredibly loved you are. And then go and love people like that. And what is at the heart of God's love for us? Forgiveness. We love like God loves when we forgive like God forgives. Forgiveness is the outward demonstration of love that, or the fact that, that it's a demonstration of love is all over scripture. Proverbs ten twelve says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. All offenses. Not some of them, not even most of them. All of them. You don't like the Old Testament? Try 1 Peter 4, 8 on for size. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sin. Love is demonstrated by forgiveness. But you see, forgiveness and love are not just the outward demonstration of each other. They are also the motivation for each other. We don't just imitate God by our love and forgiveness. We love and forgive. Why? Because we are loved and forgiven. I think the most beautiful example of this is found in Luke 7 with the story of the sinful woman. Beginning in verse 36, we read the story of Jesus being invited to the home of a Pharisee for dinner. And I don't know exactly how that works, how people seem to kind of come and go in each other's houses without an invitation. But, but regardless, there's a, a woman, the story tells of a woman of ill repute, a prostitute. She heard of this dinner and she showed up at this Pharisee's house with an expensive jar, jar of perfume. And her story says that she proceeded to kiss the feet of Jesus and wash his feet with her tears and anoint them with perfume. Well, the Pharisee host observes this, and he is outraged and actually uses it to discredit Jesus, saying that, hey, if you were really a prophet, you would know exactly what kind of a sinful woman is is doing this to you. And you would certainly stop her from touching you and and get her out of the house. But instead, we read, beginning in verse 44 of Luke 7, it says this, turning to the woman... I love that. He turned to the woman and then and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So if by God's grace, he has made you a dearly beloved child, then like this woman, he is looking you square in the eye and saying, child, I love you. Your sins are forgiven. That's how much I love you. But you know, I think about why is it that so few of us are prone to express our love for God as extravagantly as this woman did? I think we probably all know the answer if we're honest. It's because we don't see ourselves as sinful as this woman. Am I right? I mean, we may not say it, but we functionally believe that God has varying degrees of grace that he applies to each of us. That there are some people so awful that God has to bring out the family size container of grace to cover all of their sins. But for most of us, look, He didn't need to actually really lavish us with grace and forgiveness. You know, kind of a moderate sprinkling took care of it for, for us. We weren't that bad. I grew up in the church, I was saved when I was five, I was a good kid. But whether you come to Jesus as a murderous drug king fan or a well-behaved nine-year-old, guess what? You were still dead in your sins. You were still far from God and you were still fully deserving of his wrath. Which required God's extravagant love to call you as his child. You've got to know that God did not leave the glory of heaven to endure all he did to rescue us from the penalty of a few misdemeanors. If you don't see yourself as as sinful and deserving of God's wrath as much as the prostitute in Luke 7, then hear me, you don't see yourself rightly. But when you get to the place where you can honestly describe yourself like the Apostle Paul as the chief of sinners, then and only then will you truly begin to imitate God. You will love much because you realize you have been forgiven much. So I'll close with one more exhortation from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. Beginning of the verse, at the very beginning of Ephesians 4, he starts this way. Therefore, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Deem or walk in love as dearly beloved children and be imitators of God. Pray with me. Father, this text is as intimidating as it is inspiring. That the God of the universe would call us to be imitators. That you would create us in your image. That we have, have even the possibility of being holy as you are holy to love people as extravagantly as you love people. To be willing to forgive as as completely and freely as you have forgiven us. God, what a thought. What a truth. God, would this would we be once again overwhelmed with the Amazing story of grace that you have applied to us. That for reasons that we can't fathom, no credit to us, you, before the foundations of the world, predestined us to be children of God, dearly loved children of God. God, we need you We need you if we have a hope of being able to walk in love it will only be by your strength. We trust in you you alone that, that you who began this work in us, you will be the one who will be faithful to complete it. You will be the one who empowers us to be imitators of God. God, do your work in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.